Thank you, Brother Luke, for the fine way that you led the singing tonight. I'll tell you what, you all have some fine song leaders in this congregation, and I love when the songs, the the tempo is kept up and and the enthusiasm is being sung with, and so I'm, I'm very encouraged by that, and I hope that you are as well. If you're visiting with us tonight, thank you for being here tonight. We certainly are privileged to have you in our presence, and we're thankful that you've chosen to be with uh, us during this gospel meeting. We have one more night in the gospel meeting tomorrow night. I know that many of uh, our visitors, perhaps who's visiting from other congregations, will have to attend where their local uh, local group meets, and you won't be able to come uh, tomorrow night. But for those who are able to attend, we're going to talk about the subject of letting God be God. And so what we mean by that is understanding our role as it pertains to allowing God to be to, to, to work His role, and our role is to follow Him in faith. And so we're going to talk about that extensively tomorrow night. If you have your Bibles, you may be turning over to Matthew chapter 18, will be the text of our lesson tonight. But before we get into Matthew chapter 18, I want to, I want to carry you back some years ago in my life about... When I was a senior in high school, about seven, eight years ago, I was, uh, I had an, I had a very hard English teacher. And I didn't, you know, I didn't understand what the big deal was about taking English as a senior in high school because I was fairly fluent in English. I, I knew English fairly well. But my teacher came up and told me toward the end of my last semester, he said, listen, Dwayne, he goes, I gotta be honest with you. He said, if you don't score a 79 or better on this final exam, and he said, keep in mind, most of it is written. There's a lot of written part of this exam. He said, then you're not going to walk down the aisle and you'll have to take summer school if you want to graduate. I got a little bit worried about that for about 10, 15 minutes and decided that I ought to go home, maybe study a little bit, you know, and so I came back the next day and I worked I fairly hard, in my opinion, on, on on preparing for that for that exam. And the next day, I never will forget. Mr. Good came to me and he said, "Dwayne, he said, listen, he said, I I I got you to where you need to be. He said, I gave you an eighty on your paper, but I got to tell you this. He said, I had to forgive a lot of the mistakes that I found in your essay." He said, I just want you to make me one promise. And I said, sure, Mr. Good, anything, whatever you need. He said, just promise to me that you'll never do any public speaking. (laughs) I held true to that promise for a few years, but then Mr. Good passed away and, and the rest is history. So tonight I want to spend some time talking about that concept of forgiveness. And I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 18 because... We read of a very interesting passage here in Matthew 18, and we're going to look at a parable tonight, and it's a concept that we all, each one of us, every one of us as human beings are going to struggle with at some point in our life. If we haven't already, it will happen one day. We're going to struggle with the concept of forgiveness. Thirty years ago, the former drummer for the Eagles, a man by the name of Don Hindley, had the following lyrics to one of his most popular songs when he, uh, where he wrestled with this same subject. And I want to read some of these lyrics to you tonight. He said in this song, he said, These times are so uncertain and there's a yearning undefined. 
And people filled with rage, how can love survive in such a graceless age? I don't know about you, but I don't think things have gotten any better in the last 30 years. Do you sense more grace today? I sense more rage. It seems to me as I look about our communities and I look about our nation and I look about our society, it seems to me that everyone just seems to be angry. Everyone just seems to be so much more hostile. They, they seem to be so volatile. And no one seems to be listening anymore. They're just hurling words and it's as though we live in such a graceless age. Everyone seems to be wrestling with what is at the heart of this anger and this rage and this hostility. Henley went on in his song and he said, The more that I know, the less I understand. All the things I thought I'd figured out, I have to learn again. I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter, but everything changes and my friends seem to scatter. But I think it's about forgiveness. He said he thinks it's about forgiveness. Well, let's see if he's right about that. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21 I want us to appreciate as we get into this parable that these, that when we talk about the concept of parables, they were not these little sweet bedtime stories that Jesus would tell the disciples. These were used as teaching tools that Jesus would often have to use in order to drive a point home. He realized as he was teaching from time to time that the disciples, the apostles and his audience just didn't get it. They just weren't able to understand what he was saying. And so he would use these parables and oftentimes, oftentimes he used them in a very shocking manner. Sometimes as the listeners would listen to these parables, he was trying to shock them out of their conventional way of thinking and bring them around to the way that God would have them think. And we talked a little bit about this last night. We talked about the parable of the prodigal son and we talked about the parable of the workers in the vineyard and how shocking and scandalous this must have been to the people who first heard it. And so oftentimes as we look at Jesus' parables, they are accompanied sometimes with exaggeration. They're accompanied with things that would shock these people into understanding what his point was. And so as we look at this parable, we, we begin reading tonight in verse 21, when Peter came to Jesus and he asked him a very interesting question. He said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, I don't know who Peter is struggling with here. He's often, he's obviously got a a problem going on with somebody. Perhaps it was his wife. Perhaps it was another apostle. Perhaps it was a neighbor or somebody from the marketplace. But apparently there's a person who keeps sinning against Peter. And Peter evidently thinks he's serving it up big to the Lord when he comes to him and says, how, how often should I forgive this person? Up to seven times? Now I can almost envision Peter stepping back and thinking to himself, look at me. 
I mean, I, I, I've gone the extra mile here. Peter's expecting Jesus to say, way to go, Peter. You are doing such a good job. Most people would only forgive someone five times. You, you, you're way ahead, Peter. I want you to notice what Jesus said in verse 22. Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. How often? I mean, I can see the disciples standing around thinking to themselves, how often did he say 70 times seven? I want us to understand that that doesn't mean that we get to 489, 490, and 491. Thank goodness I am so done forgiving you. That's not what he's saying. This is the language of hyperbole. And what Jesus is saying is, is that there is no end. It's an exaggeration. There is no end to the amount of forgiveness that we are to offer someone who has sinned against us. As I read this, as I read this text, I can't help but think to myself that the eyes of Peter must have been that big around. And I can't help but think that the other disciples stood around with a confused look on their self because I want you to notice the very next word in the very next verse. It says, therefore, which is kind of code sometimes, for here comes the parable. Jesus is about to present to them a parable because they obviously do not understand. And so as we see in verse 23, therefore, and we begin our reading and understanding the parable, he says, there is a, therefore a kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now let me help you appreciate this, if you don't mind, and perhaps you those of you who write in your Bible, you might take a moment to write in your Bible what I'm about to tell you because I, it, it took me some time to do some research on this. A talent was a currency back in the Old Testament. And from my research, a talent was the equivalent to 20 years' wages. Most people would have never been able to see a talent in their entire life all in one place together. They would have never seen a talent. But a talent was the equivalent to 20 years wages. So in order for us to understand just exactly how much we're looking for, what I did is I tried to translate that into modern terms. 20 years wages. One talent. And so I went on Google and I decided I'm going to look up the median income of one household in America. The average income for what, what, it, what, what one person in America across the United States makes. And the number that I found was 48000 Now you might be sitting to yourself thinking, Ooh, that's a whole lot more money than I make. Well, I'm sure that with the cost of living out in California, their wages are probably a little bit higher than ours. And I'm sure that the cost of living on the East Coast up in New York, their wages probably bump up the average, but the average came out to be $48,000 a year. And so what I did is I took that $48,000 a year and I said, what is that equivalent to times 20? So you take 48,000 times 20 and then you multiply that times 10,000. 
Now keep in mind, Jesus is talking about a parable here. There's a certain amount of shock factor here. And so here's the number that I came up with after I did the math. $9.6 billion with a B. $9.6 billion in today's math. That kind of helps us understand just how... Just how magnificent this number must have been. A man who owed 20,000 talents, or 10,000 talents, 20 years wages times 10,000. I want you to look at the following verses, verses 25 through verse 27. And I want you to think, I don't know what translation you're reading from, but let's see if our translation sounds somewhat similar. In verse 25 it says, But he he was not able to pay his master. And his master commanded that he be sold, and that his wife and his children and all that he had uh, be sold, and, and that the payment be made. And the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience on me, and I will pay you all. In verse 27, Then the master said to the servant, You know, he's a pretty good guy. I've known this guy for a long time. I'll tell you what, let's just forgive him of his debt. Is that what your translation says? Probably not, because I just made that up. The translation, most of our translations read the same here. It says his master was moved with compassion. He looked upon him with compassion. He felt sorry for him. And the Bible says that he was willing to release and forgive him of all that debt. I got to tell you something. $9.6 billion of debt. This magnificent debt gone. How would you feel if you had this large debt that you had no idea how you were going to repay and you go before your the, the person who carried the debt, the banker, whoever it may be, and they said, I'll tell you what, just forget about it. I would feel pretty happy about it. i got to tell you that the very next verse of our reading tonight has one of the saddest words in the New Testament to me. It starts out with me, to me, one of the the saddest words that you can read. The Bible says in the very next verse, but, you notice that? This man was moved with compassion, but verse 28 tells us, but the servant went out and he found his fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii and he laid his hands on him and he took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. Why is it that that verse started out with but and why is it that it didn't start out with and? I mean, think about this. That verse should have said something like this. And he went out and he, and, he, and he looked around the community to the people who owed him money and he said, forget about it. Don't pay me anything. I want to forgive everybody their debt. Hey, why don't your chariot go first today? Not mine. You go first. The Bible says he went out and he found somebody that owed him a hundred denarii. Put this into perspective, a denarii was considered a day's wage, and so the guy owed him about three months' wages. I think that's very interesting that the Lord used that amount of money. 
Because in the story, Jesus on purpose didn't say the guy just owed him ten bucks. I mean, three months wages is enough. That's enough that it, it, it could hurt. Somebody could feel that. Verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and he begged him saying, Have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not and he put him... And he would not, and he went and he threw him into prison till he should be able to pay his debt. So then the fellow servants saw what he had done, and they were grieved, and they came and told the master and all that he had done. And the master, after he had he'd called him, he said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servants? Just as I had compassion on you. Verse 33 contains a rhetorical question. And the reason that we know it's rhetorical because there's not an option A and an option B. There's not an either or. There's not, there's not a maybe I should or maybe I shouldn't. And the reason that we know that is what it said is in verse 34. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay that which, that which was due him. Let me tell you something, brethren. If you ever wonder what God's emotion is to those of us who do not forgive, verse 34 tells it to us. He will take us and deliver us to the torturers. That's God's emotion right there in verse 34. I got to tell you something. This, this is heavy stuff. This is some heavy stuff because it's right at the heart of something that each and every one of us struggle with from time to time. We get hurt and we get sinned against. And let me tell you, this parable is radical and it's sobering. To those of us who have been living life as though forgiveness is an option. And I gotta tell you, I've been, I've been, I've been guilty of that. Living my life as though forgiveness is an option. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I want you to understand and appreciate tonight that forgiveness, brethren, is not an option. What we're talking about is at the very heart and center of keeping every relationship intact. This is very important. When I want you to understand that when whenever forgiveness becomes optional, then relationships become fragile. They become unsustainable. And oftentimes they become disposable. When we choose to understand and we choose to go the route that forgiveness is optional, then we must understand that relationships will become fragile. They'll become unsustainable and they will become disposable. That's why we see in our our society that we live in today, we see marriages just thrown away as though it was nothing. We see friendships that's just discarded as though they never happened. We see people going from church to church. They're bouncing around from church to church. And they just, they, you know what they say? Well, I just can't find a church that gets it right. Well, let me tell you why you can't find a church that just gets it right. 
is because every church is full of sinners that's trying to be forgiven. Every marriage has, involves two sinners that are trying to be forgiven. Every co-worker relationship, every friendship is involving two sinners that are desperate for forgiveness. I know earlier I was younger and, and guilty of, of, of this. I would look out in the congregation, and I know many people are like this. They'll look out in the congregation and they'll see brothers and sisters that's that's been married 25, 30, 35, 40 years. You know what? They, they step back and they scratch their head and they think, well, they must have had a better assessment test than we did. They must have had a better personality test. Maybe they had pre, better premarital counseling. Maybe their personalities were just perfect for each other. Maybe they spent more time dating each other before they got married. Maybe they did something different than we did. Maybe we just didn't do things right. If, if that's the type of thinking that you're involved in, let me say this. Don't do that. Don't do that. They've been married decades because they've learned to forgive one another. You won't live with another sinner for decades and not get hurt. You won't have a friendship that goes on for decades and not get hurt at some point. You won't have a relationship with co-workers or whatever relationship you may or may not have and not get hurt. So let me suggest to you tonight that the theme that I'm trying to get across to you tonight, as we meditate on this parable... I want, to, I want you to understand what our message of our, our lesson is tonight, is that biblical forgiveness is not about trying to forget what, others have, what the other person did to you. Instead, it's about your choice to remember what God has done for you through Christ on the cross of Calvary. So let me give you three steps tonight as we look at this passage that will help get you past the struggle of not being able to forgive. Let me suggest to you tonight as we look at Matthew chapter 18, that if you want to forgive, you have to look past the person who hurts you, and you have to look back to the cross of Calvary and what God has done for us. Notice, if you would, verse 32 and 33. The master, after he had called him, he said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on the fellow servant just as I had pity on you? One of the biggest problems is that we keep looking at the person that hurt us. And we keep combing through the consequences of this hurt. And we keep looking at the circumstances that caused the pain. And we fail to realize that we aren't looking far enough. We need to look past that person who wronged us. And do you know what we often do? We keep waiting and we keep watching them from the shadows. And we keep thinking to ourselves, do they seem sorry? Are they the type of person, do they seem like they've really changed and we're watching and we're watching? Let me tell you something, brethren. They may never be sorry. And they may never change. That's the fact of life. They may never do it. 
But the problem is, is that we're not looking far enough. We're looking at the wrong thing. We need to look past that person that hurt us and we need to look back to God. And this is so, this is just so contrary to our nature, isn't it? I want us to notice again the very hinge that the door of forgiveness swings on in verse 32 there. Just as I had on you. That's, that's the hinge that the door of forgiveness swings on. Why should I forgive them? Just as God has forgiven me. Well, they don't seem like they're sorry. They don't seem like they're sorry. They don't, they don't look like they've repented. They don't seem like the person that's sorry. Well, let me ask you something. Did we seem like we were sorry when God forgave us? Did God forgive us because we had our act all cleaned up? We were all crystal clean. We were pure as snow. We were white as can be. Is that when God chose to forgive us? The Bible tells us in Ephesians, or in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, that God demonstrates His love to us. That while we were yet sinners, He died for us. Another passage over in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. But because of this, His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The fact of the matter is, is we hadn't cleaned ourselves all the way up when God forgave us. We hadn't got our act all the way together. One of my favorite passages, Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 30. And going down to verse 32, the Bible tells us, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed to the day of redemption. Now I want to tell you something about that word grieved. That word grieved would be the same word that we would use in the context of of losing a loved one that was very close to us. And so if you wonder about God's feelings when we choose not to forgive The Bible says it grieves Him. The Bible says He's grieved by that. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Notice what He says there in verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as God has forgiven you. This is what God says about mercy. He did it for me and He did it for you. Not just for a little bit, but at the tune of $9.6 billion. That's what He forgave us. So I encourage you, brethren, tonight, take your focus off the level of hurt that you have and off the person that hurts you and off of your circumstances and you look to the cross of Christ. Let me suggest to you secondly tonight. Stop expecting payment and choose to absorb the cost of their sin. I'm going to tell you something. That's radical. That's hard for us to do, isn't it? Oftentimes when somebody sins against us, you know what we do? We use that as collateral. 
We've got a chip in the game. We put that in our pocket and we store that away for another day. We use that as collateral. We want, we recognize that they owe us. That's the way that we look at it when someone sins against us. They owe us. As I look at the text, I'm using the same math. We conclude that the amount that is mentioned in verse 28 is roughly about $12,000. Now I want you to think about that for a second. God has forgiven us of $9.6 billion. And the amount that somebody owes us is $12,000? I don't know what stage you are in life, but $12,000 to me is still a lot of money. And let's say Cody here owes me $12,000. I'm not so sure that I could just say, hey, you know what, Cody, don't worry about it. What's $12,000 among friends? I'd be more like, hey, what can we do to work this out? Can you have a yard sale? Can you, can you go donate plasma? I mean, let's, let's talk about a payment plan. Can we work it out? That's the way that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this, you know? That's how we look at it. But when we understand how irrelevant it really is in the grand scheme of things, And in reality, if I was going to graph, and I took the time to do this tonight, and I want to share this, I want to share this graph with you. I put a scaled graph to show you the difference between 9.6 million, a billion dollars to $12,000, and this is what it looks like. Can you even see the $12,000? It's so small that you cannot even hardly see that it's there. And I got to tell you something, brethren, when I start thinking of it in these terms and I start going out into society, I realize that big orange glow that is above my head of what God has forgiven me of, of $9.6 billion. And so when I'm driving down the interstate and somebody cuts me off, I think $9.6 billion. When somebody sends me an email and it gets under my skin, I think $9.6 billion. That's the way that we've got to look at this. We've got to realize the magnitude of what God was willing to forgive us of. We need to keep that in mind in every aspect of our life. I want you to think for a second just how radical... This concept really is. It kind of reminds me of the song we sing, Man of Sorrows. Y'all sing that song here, Man of Sorrows. Oftentimes we sing it back home right before the Lord's Supper. There's a verse, verse number three. I'm going to tell you, when I'm, when I'm contemplating on the Lord's Supper and I'm thinking about what God has done for me, that verse number three of Man of Sorrows, it really gets to me. I mean, you just think about what Isaiah says about our Savior. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. I don't know who your acquaintances are. I have a lot of acquaintances. But I've never thought of myself as being a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But let me, let me read that verse 3 to you. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. 
full atonement can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. I think about that often. I look at my life and I look at the sin. I look at my youth. I look at the things that I've done and I think to myself, full atonement, can it, can it really be? I mean, God is willing to get rid of this debt? Think about how radical that is. He's canceled our debt while we were still sinners. He's extended us grace. He's brought us back. And listen to me, brethren, that's not all. He adopted us and now we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. In other words, we get what Christ gets. We get the same thing He gets. And in turn, I want you to think about this. When God asks you and me to, to forgive, when He asks us to forgive, that's all He asks us to do is release someone of their debt. He just wants you to, he just wants you to wipe their, their debt clean. He didn't tell us to take that person and forgive their debt and then adopt them into our family and then write them into our will. No, He just said, release them and cancel the debt. Whatever it would cost, it would never compare with what He gave. Let me ask you this. Would it shock you to understand that God is more concerned with your forgiveness of your brothers and sisters than He is with your worship. Would that shock you? We have biblical precedent of that in Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus said that if you have aught against your brother or sister, what you need to do is you need to leave your gift at the altar. You go and reconcile, and then you come back and worship God. You know why? Because if we're unwilling to, to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ, then our worship is meaningless. That's why. We need to understand that. Finally, let me point out to you one more point and then the lesson will be yours. We need to refuse to let all sin, wrongs in our relationship define or defile the whole relationship. We need to learn to do that. You see, every relationship has sin and difficulties. Every marriage has sin and difficulties. Every work relationship has, has difficulties. Every parent-child relationship has difficulties. We need to understand and be the type of people that we need not let the whole thing define or defile our relationship. Here's what I mean by that. Find a place... To put the wrong. Find a place to put it. I'm not talking about sweeping a wrong under the carpet. I'm just talking about when someone does us wrong. Find a place to put it emotionally and mentally. Does that make any sense? Some people have a problem arise in whatever relationship. And you know what they do? They just want to poke it and they want to prod it and they want to poke it. And then they wonder why the relationship's not getting any better. Kind of like a few years ago, I, I went out to the state fairgrounds and I was taking a tour of the horse barns. They were 
they were remodeling the horse barns at the Indiana State Fair. There's about 10 horse barns where they keep about 100 horses in each barn. And I'm walking out back, and this is how naive I am. I'm looking in the back, and I thought, huh, well, that sure is a big, tall mountain of mulch. And uh, I said, what do y'all do with all that mulch? And the guy laughed at me, and he said, uh, that's not mulch. <laughs> Turns out that's the compost pile. And then he began to tell me, he says, you know, he says, what happens is once a week or so, he said, these, 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 uh, these guys that own these horses, they've got to go through and they've got to clean out the waste or the living space just becomes unbearable. And brethren, if we can understand that concept and that illustration, that we can understand what I'm trying to say here, that if we, if we don't find a place to put these wrongs out of our mind and out of our life and forgive someone for it, and they just fester in our lives, they become unbearable. And our lives become unlivable. Don't let these wrongs define or defile your whole relationship. Forgiveness is about moving a wrong to the compost pile. Don Henley in his final refrain of the song that we started the lesson with said, I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter because the flesh will get weak and the ashes will scatter. So I'm thinking about forgiveness. The problem is that some of us only think about forgiveness. But God calls on all of us to forgive. Let me ask you tonight, when's, when's the last time you thought about God's forgiveness? The 23rd Psalm has been coined by many of the great authors from years gone past as being the greatest literary work of all time. There's a part of that psalm where David talks about the mercy of God. You know, sometimes we get this idea that God's mercy to us is something that God is up there in heaven and grudgingly withholds from us. And He's just waiting for us to mess up. And He's waiting for us just to, just to make a mess of our lives. And He's waiting for judgment to come down. And I mean, we've got this, we've got this wrong image of God. Because David describes in vivid terms in Psalm 23, when he says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's the idea of the mercy of God pursuing us. The forgiveness of God pursuing us. But it takes us being willing to forgive each other. What are your needs tonight? Are you the type of person that needs to let some things from the past go? Right now might be the time that you need to reach out to this congregation and let them help you with that. Or maybe it is you've never been baptized and it's an opportunity for you tonight to put on Christ in baptism and be raised to walk a new life. Jesus said, Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Are you searching for that rest tonight? Why don't you make your need known right now while together we stand and while we sing?